Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, Clinical Professor of Medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to Podcast 25, COVID-19 Updates, Stay the Course. Changes in the way we interacted the last year and a half have certainly instilled fear and anxiety now that we are reopening society. People are excited with the reopening and really tired of the isolation and lack of human connection. The new normal is begging to be defined. What will that look like to most of us? The pandemic had certainly changed the way we interacted with each other. It changed the landscape worldwide. From lives and jobs lost to physical and mental trauma, we as people need to adjust, remain flexible, innovative, and figure out what works. The pandemic gave us time, time for ourselves, time for our families, Time to connect more with people through many different platforms. Time to reflect on what's important. Time to figure out what's comfortable rituals that we could go back to. So what are we learning during this pandemic? We learned that hope is one word that most of us could keep going. That relationship is what matters the most. That flexibility, resilience, and grit are vital. That changes are inevitable that humanity is crucial, that equity, justice, and inclusion are lacking and must be addressed, that we are fighting a common war and yet so divided in our approaches, that reopening is fraught with confusion, fear, disorganization, and inconsistencies, that prevention works while we are waiting for treatments, that compassion, healing, and service to others are basic tenets to get us through. So the basic message today is express love and hope. So today I welcome Nicole Samignani, who you are familiar with because we had her on that lively episode 14 and 15 when we did a COVID update. She is starting her master's in global health studies at UC San Francisco. She remains to be an intern for ABCs for global health. I welcome you, Nicole, and thank you for being with me today again. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be back and give all of these new updates to all your listeners. So let's get started. Yeah, I would love to just start on your message for the day, which is hope, right? So what gives us hope in all of this? Lots of things to be hopeful for. Let me start first with statistics. So the statistics are getting better, except for some under-resourced and populated countries. So this is real-world data, which now the FDA is considering as a meaningful collection of data. So the real-world evidence. There are 166 million cases globally and about 3.5 million deaths. And the number of vaccines administered thus far is 1.6 billion. 
In the U.S., there's decreasing cases and deaths, even with reopening of businesses, travel, school, religious congregations, and conferences. So in the U.S., there are 33 million cases, 589,000 deaths. And since May 18, the two weeks changes in the U.S. is this, 38% drop in cases, 12% drop in deaths, and 20% drop in hospitalization. So those are very encouraging numbers, don't you think? Yeah, that's incredible. Especially it's been a year to see these drops. I feel like that's hopeful, right? Yeah, yeah, that really gives us hope. And also in the U.S., since Biden administration, there's this accelerated administration of vaccines. It slowed down a little bit recently, but in the United States, we had at least 275 million vaccines administered and about 60% of adults in the U.S. are now vaccinated at least once. And the range of variability in vaccination is different in different states. It's around 45% to 80%. Yeah. And then what is worrisome in terms of the trends? I mean, these are lovely drops that we've seen, but is there anything that we should be worried about or looking out for? Yeah, of course, people tend to worry, right? And we still worry. So what is worrisome? The trends, for example, in unvaccinated areas. So there are clusters of unvaccinated areas. The worrisome is that there will be increasing number of infections on those areas, and it may portend increasing virulence spread and variants on those areas. So that's still worrisome. So I'm hoping that we increase the uptake of vaccinations so we could give people more hugs. Yes. <laughs> And I know that vaccines are available globally, but could you give us updates on what vaccines exactly are available and which ones are still in the pipeline? Oh, yeah. So currently we have in the U.S., we have three vaccines available. So we have the two mRNA vaccines, which started in the first week of December in the United States. So we had Pfizer started initially and then Moderna. And then most recently, J&J, which is a different type of vaccine. It's a viral vector vaccine, almost similar to AstraZeneca, which is, of course, in Europe. And in Russia, we have the Sputnik. And then in China, we have the Sinovac. And Sinovac is also shared among countries in Asia and South America. So in terms of vaccines and drugs for COVID-19, we have a robust pipeline. So we have about 701 drugs and vaccines in preclinical trials. So 208 in phase two trials and about 96 in phase three trials. So it's coming up there. Yeah. And knowing that there's so many vaccines already available, so many in the pipeline, we've seen a surge recently in other countries. Could you talk a little bit about what could possibly be happening there to see that surge? Everyone knows, right, in India with 1.3 billion population and other poorly resourced countries, the number of cases and deaths are unfortunately climbing. Hospital beds, shortages, oxygen are in poor supply. And life-saving COVID-19 treatments like remdesivir and dexamethasones are also severely lacking. India just reported 4,500 deaths in the last 24 hours. 
during this last surge, there were 207 doctors who died, giving it a total of about 1,000 doctors dead since the pandemic. In countries, for example, like Philippines, only 2% of the population are vaccinated, a low percentage of healthcare workers even vaccinated, and there's still increasing deaths of frontliners in the Philippines and other countries due to lack of supply of vaccines, still lack lacking PPEs, housing conditions are still terrible. In Brazil, for example, there's a total of 435,000 deaths. And again, also a limited supply of vaccinations. So I think, oh, with its COVAX, they're still trying to aim to a 1 billion people to be vaccinated. And this remained to be a challenge because one of the major suppliers, for example, Serum Institute of India, halted its export of vaccines, and rightly so. They have to vaccinate their people. So I think for the meantime, despite the improvement of the statistics, we should still be doing a lot of these preventive measures, like masking, social distancing, hand washing, with some modulation of the way we practice socialization now. Yeah, and I know that with all of these vaccines available, we have seen a decrease in vaccines administered over the last few months in the U.S. Could you elaborate a little bit on possible reasons for vaccine hesitancy in the U.S. and how this could be extrapolated to other countries? Yes, sure. That's a a great question. I think a lot of these questions have been submitted to us on our website. So in terms of the causes for vaccine hesitancy, like 60% were worried about the side effects. And later on, I'll put this in perspective. So 60% are worried about side effects. 55% do not trust the government to make sure that the vaccines are safe and effective. And go figure, right? So I think leadership and governance should be re-evaluated. And then 53% of vaccines, according to people, are too new, and they want to wait for other people to see how it works for other people. So that's 53%. And I've talked to some of my older relatives. They said, oh, I want to make sure that it's okay for other people before I try it. I'll give it a year. That's what they're telling me. And then 51%, politics have played too much of a role on the vaccine process, and people tend to not trust politicians. 43%, the risk of COVID-19, they feel that was exaggerated. They said, oh, COVID-19 is not really a bad disease, and we think that the public is over-exaggerating the risk. And about 33% don't trust the vaccine in general. 35% do not trust the healthcare system. So I think medical healthcare workers should figure out how we could recapture that trust to science and to healthcare. 27%, they are saying that they may get COVID from COVID-19 vaccines. They're afraid that they will get COVID from it. And 20% don't think that they are at risk for getting COVID. They said, oh, I'm healthy. I won't get COVID. So that's basically most of the reasons why people are not taking the vaccine. So I think in terms of your other questions, could those be extrapolated to other countries? I think culture and governance is variable in places. In other countries where they have high trust to their leaders, their uptake for vaccines is better. When they're not given much choices and they are told to take the vaccine, they take the vaccine. 
vaccine. I think there's a variability on that. So I don't think this uptake, the reasons for decreased uptake on vaccine hesitancy could be extrapolated in other countries. Right, right. And then as a physician, what thoughts do you have on how we can improve the uptake then on the vaccines, knowing all of these statistics as to why people don't want to take them? I think messaging is the key. Listen to what people are saying and understanding what is behind the words, what is behind the words and their behavior. But let's put things in perspective so people would understand why vaccines are important. This I will discuss about the risk of having COVID and the risk from vaccines. So let's talk about the risk from death from COVID-19 first. So globally, there are, as you know, 167 million number of cases, 167 million. And out of that, we have almost 3.5 million deaths. And on top of that, there's about 10% of those will be long haulers, meaning protracted symptoms of shortness of breath, cough, fatigue, brain fog, cognitive impairment. So let's think about that. And then if you look at different countries, for example, in the U.S., there are a total of 33 million cases, 590,000 deaths. In India, 26 million cases, 305,000 deaths. In Brazil, 16 million people affected with COVID and 449,000 deaths. So think about those cases and deaths and the long haulers. And then let's talk about the serious side effects from vaccines or from dying from the vaccines. So what are those numbers? For example, dying with COVID in a 25-year-old, it's basically 23 in a million. But the deaths, for example, serious harm from vaccine in a 25-year-old is 11 per million. But the risk of dying in that age group is 23 in a million. So 11 in a million versus 23 in a million on this young person. On a 55-year-old person, for example, and over, the serious harm from vaccine is four in a million, whereas death from COVID is 800 in a million. So even just looking at those numbers, it seems to me it makes sense. I will take the vaccine, right? So I think people have to look at those numbers and reflect on those and see. And in terms of serious incidents, like serious side effects, for example, anaphylaxis, where you get in a state of shock and you get to the ER, that only happens about 11 in a million vaccines. So 11 in a million vaccines, and no one died from those. They got taken to the ER, they got emergency treatment, few patients got hospitalized, and few patients got to the ICU. But that's 11 in a million, whereas the death in a million is 800. And then we'll talk about the thrombosis later on that we unveiled in terms of the J&J vaccine or the viral vector vaccine. So the incidence of that is like 1.8 in a million for the J&J in the U.S. and then about six per million with AstraZeneca in the European side. Yeah, you know, we could talk about that right now if you wanted to. Um... Oh, sure. So I know that it was paused recently, the J&J vaccine for 10 days due to this feared blood clot side effect. So could you discuss a little bit what this blood clot associated to the pause was? 
Oh, yes, yes. So it was paused for 10 days. And I think because our CDC were a little bit worried because of that side effect that's a little bit more severe than what we would expect. Since we don't know much about it, they paused it for 10 days, which did not help because it fueled more fear and anxiety about the vaccine. So a lot of people had criticized that pause, but we didn't know. So that's the best data that we had at the time. And we had to make the decision, right? So what is the side effect? It's called thrombosis in the blood clot. It's mainly in the cerebral venous sinus area. So in the brain where we have the cavernous venous sinus areas. And the side effects usually manifest right about four to 28 days uh, after the vaccine. And it's uh, the common presentation is headache. It's worse when you lay down. They may have nausea and vomiting. They may have blurring of vision, speech difficulties, drowsiness, and seizures. And some people manifest with a little bit of shortness of breath, chest pains, and some abdominal pain because there may be thrombosis on the areas of the abdomen and the chest. People may have leg swelling. So what do people think about the thrombosis with thrombocytopenia? So thrombosis is the blood clot and thrombocytopenia is decrease in platelets. So when people have decreased platelets, most people think that they will tend to bleed, but this is the counter to that. They have blood clots in terms of bleeding. And the mechanism is unknown why that happens, but it seems to be related to the so-called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, so what we call HIT in the medical community, where we have thrombosis and thrombocytopenia because of the presence of a positive platelet factor 4 antibody. The presentation is thrombosis and not bleeding, and also because it has been associated with the platelet factor 4 activation. The treatment is actually not giving heparin because in other thrombosis or blood clots, we treat with heparin, but this is not treated with heparin. It's treated with immune globulin and we avoid platelet transfusion. Ah, okay. Now that we've heard all of the side effects associated with the J&J vaccine, could you just wrap up the side effects of all the vaccines for all the listeners? Oh, surely. We did that before, but let me reiterate. The vaccines are generally safe and efficacious. And minimal side effects, for example, with Pfizer and Moderna, there's about 4.6% of fatigue, 2% myalgia, 1% arthralgia or joint pains. 3% headaches and 2% chills. Those are the most common side effects and they generally last for a day or a few days. And Moderna is about the same except a little bit increased with those percentages compared to Pfizer. And then we have the immediate allergic side effects where people develop rash, and which is about 2%, and the anaphylaxis, which is about four in a million doses. And there are people with immediate side effects. They pass out and stuff like that, which is really not from the vaccine. It's just the reaction to the injection. And then there's some delayed reaction also. Usually the reaction that's delayed, sometimes it's not even seen on the second dose. Only about 50% is seen on the second dose. Oh, okay. So then on the topic of the second dose, what are some circumstances in which you would recommend someone delaying their second dose? 
So for example, if the patient had what's so-called allergic reaction and you're not sure, some of those patients, we delay the second dose until they get evaluated by the allergy specialist. And sometimes people, if they had the COVID-19, for example, after the first dose, we delay also the second dose. And in other countries, the second dose was delayed because they didn't have enough. And with the goal of vaccinating more people to protect more people, other countries, like for example, in Europe, they delayed their second dose to give more first dose opportunities to more people. And the real world data, like Pfizer, showed that delaying it by 11 to 12 weeks after the first dose, it was actually associated with a higher peak of antibody response. So I think there's some advantage to delay. Yeah, I wonder if they would, you know, with more research, if they would change the amount of time between the two doses. Yeah, I think we will find out that maybe extending the interval may be beneficial. We'll see. As we get more data, we will probably see more of that. The caveat, though, is people are worried that one vaccine will increase the infection rates from different variants. So that's a worry. We will find out. And that's why we're sticking to the usual interval dose that were looked at on the original trials. Right, right. So then just to clarify some questions from the listeners, you know, if you get the vaccine, could you still get an infection? Well, the answer to that is maybe. But if you get the infection, what is known is it's milder form of the infection. So with the vaccine, I like the listeners to be reminded that we actually vaccinate not just to prevent the disease, but actually to prevent the severe form of the disease that requires hospitalization, ICU admission, and also prevention of death. So it's really preventing the severe disease and deaths. We don't mind about preventing the the simple cold symptoms of COVID-19, but it is really the severe effects of having COVID-19. Right. And then how about for those who already had COVID, could they still get it? Oh, that's an important question because that's one of the questions I have because I had COVID uh, seven days after I got the first vaccine and I was very sick. And during the time that I was in the hospital, I asked even my colleagues, should I get the second shot? And at that time, we didn't know anything about it yet. Should we get the second shot? It seems to me that you already got the disease, so you're protected. But it turned out that the protection from the vaccine will give you more neutralizing antibiotics body and you'll get even a much more robust cell mediated T response with the vaccine compared to when you're having the disease. You know, as we get more data, we will know more about this. But for now, it's advocated that people still should get the second dose of vaccine, even if they already had the disease. And people were worried, would I be sicker? Actually, I wasn't sick. And a lot of people who got the second dose of the vaccine were not sick as predicted if you had the disease. Interesting. Yeah. And then we know that the symptoms of COVID are generally mild, of course, except for those very severe symptoms that people do experience. But what would you advise people watch out for? And when should they go to the hospital? Yeah, really, I appreciate that question, because I myself as a doctor underestimated that. 
So as you progress with COVID, for example, you have mild disease. Within about five to six days, some people develop progression or worsening of their symptoms, which I underestimated because I got so weak and I couldn't breathe anymore. I was probably breathing like 30 a minute and really working hard to just get that breath. So I think progressive shortness of breath should entice you to go and seek help, to go to the hospital. Dehydration, progressive weakness, confusion, and somnolence, you should go to the hospital. And chest pains. And so now that we know more about the manifestations of COVID, how has the treatment developed for providers when they are working with patients with COVID? For people who are vulnerable during the early part of their treatment, so we have the monoclonal antibodies. But in general, the treatment for COVID-19 is supportive. So hydration, getting your strength up. So again, monoclonal antibodies during the early phase of the disease with remdesivir and baricitinib. So those are the monoclonal antibodies. And then basically, it's a treatment of the complications. In the hospital, people are given remdesivir and dexamethasone depending on their state. Like if they have increasing oxygen requirement, then they get dexamethasone. But it's really the treatment of dehydration, treatment of the respiratory complications, treatment of superimposed bacterial infections, blood clots, and cardiac and cerebral stuff like palpitations or arrhythmia, cardiomyopathy or heart failure, and also the management of stroke if they do develop stroke. Right. And so with all of these administered vaccines that we've seen over the last few months, we know that the CDC did recently release some new guidelines. So could you just elaborate a little bit on what these new masking guidelines are? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's really great because people are excited about this. People are excited to reopen society, to get business schools, travel started, (laughs) right? Yeah, travel. So I think the guidelines are vaccinated. People no longer need masks on most indoors and outdoors, except in public transportation, for example, schools, homeless shelters, correctional facilities, nursing homes, and healthcare facilities. So those still mandate mask, but in general, most outdoor and indoor activities, you could probably remove your mask if you're vaccinated. I will still be careful with people who are immune suppressed. I think people around them should still wear masks. And I think we should still put a wall on those people to protect them. I mean, I wouldn't know who is vaccinated, who's sick and asymptomatic, who's immunosuppressed, for example, if I get into the airplane. So even if airlines said, oh, our filtering system is upgraded, but now they don't have spacing anymore in the airplane. So I would still think twice about pulling down my mask. Do I really need to eat that cracker and almond? Am I really that hungry for a one or five hour trip to pull down that mask? I would probably probably still put on the mask and keep it on for as long as I can. Because I don't know who's vaccinated, who's not, and who's sick, who's not. Uh, I don't know who's pregnant, who's immunosuppressed. So I will think twice about that. And then I will think twice about visiting my loved ones. How vulnerable are they? Do I really need to hug them or be in close space with them? Could I visit them outside in a well-ventilated area? So I think people have to think about those. And I think this pandemic 
pandemic will dictate how we will behave and how we will adjust our day-to-day life. I think that's my prediction. Yeah. And I'd love to shift the conversation to youth a little bit, because I do think that wearing a mask in school and all the adjustments that they had have been really difficult. So could you share any updates you had on vaccine safety and recommendations for children, adolescents and young adults? So the reason why the children, young adults were on the bottom of the totem pole is because the risk of death of those individuals is a lot lesser than when we initially ramp up vaccination is for older people because of the risk of death for older people. But Moderna is already on phase two and three trials on people with age 12 to 17. They looked at 3,700 children, adolescents, and young adults, and they've shown that the vaccine is not only safe, but it's effective. The same like equivalent to the adult population in terms of safety and efficacy. And Pfizer, I believe, rolled out their vaccine already on the 12 to 15 years old, which in the U.S. makes about 5% of our population. So that's rolled out. And people ask, how about two years old and under? And I think the thinking is still evolving on that age group. But the probability is, yes, they may be vaccinated. Yeah. And then what are some additional like future predictions that you have as these vaccines roll out and as more people become vaccinated? Whoa, as if I have that, the ball, right? (laughs) So You know it all. (laughs) So, you know, it remains to be seen, but the trend supports these predictions. Booster for vaccine is expected. Uh, I think it will be like a flu, like we would have booster, like tetanus shot, we have booster every 10 years. What the interval of the booster, we don't know yet. So that's still unknown. As we we're finding out that six months, people still have effective protection in terms of their immunity. That six months after the rollout of the vaccination, we have now six months data of efficacy in terms of immunity. I think the number two is all age group will be vaccinated. I believe that the more vaccines will be available and probably treatment for COVID-19 will be available in the pipeline. If we are patient and we are united, I think we could probably decrease COVID-19, but we may not totally eliminate it. But hopefully it will be just in the background like a simple call in the future. Yes. And, you know, we did touch on the topic of vaccination, pregnant women, and immunosuppressed a little bit on this episode and also on the previous COVID-19 episode that we did together. So with all this new information that we've gotten over the last few months, could you just elaborate on new recommendations for those groups? Oh, yeah, sure. As you know, the listeners, we mentioned last time that pregnant women are at increased risk for hospitalization, deaths, and severity of infection during pregnancy. And at that time, the College of Obstetrics and Gynecology have recommended the use of vaccines. And what have we learned from there? As we rolled out the vaccines and we had more and more pregnant women who had the vaccine, it has been shown to be safe and efficacious. So that's for the pregnant women. And for the immune suppressed. Yes, they had more communication with their rheumatologist. The pregnant women had more communication with their primary care physicians and their obstetricians. So there was increased communication. And for immunosuppressed patients, their treatments sometimes are adjusted or are put on hold and they get the vaccine. So the scheduling of their treatment with immune suppression are basically altered, but it's still protective for them and safe. 
So then how can we move forward, continue to move into the future and past all of the pandemic experiences that we've had and shift and change our messaging about COVID-19 and the vaccine? Oh, that's a multi-million dollar question. So in the past, when people are faced with tragedy, with pandemic or what have you, people tend to bound together or they get closer and they get united. This pandemic has been a little bit different. We're fighting a big war, but yet we find ourselves in different camps. How can we improve acceptance of the vaccine and how could we improve the messaging for masking? I think the key is we keep thinking, oh, they're Republicans, these are Democrats, they're right-wing, left-wing, they're too religious, they're not religious. I don't really care where you are on the areas you are in, in terms of your thinking process. I think we should improve by hearing more the messages behind the words and behavior understanding more, listening more, respecting people for their thinking process, and hopefully open up our mindset and being less judgmental so we could regain back the trust. Yes, absolutely. I agree. It's all about communication, being open-minded, and understanding of everyone. Let's work together to get over this. We're all going through the same experiences of COVID. So really to come together and move forward. I think that's the best way for us to continue pushing through. I think so. I think understanding each other will be actually crucial. Yeah. And avoid judgment and prejudice. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, that's all the questions I had for you today. We went over so much from all your listeners. Thank you for sending in all the messages. Oh, thank you. And I hope, I mean, we're facing good times, better times. I think everyone is really excited about reopening. I think what's going on around the world is still not as great as what's happening in the U.S. So I think we should extend the help globally. And I think my final message is be a beacon of hope. Keep an open mind for the good of all. Be of service to one another and be compassionate to yourself and to others. I think those are my final messages. I really would like to thank you, Nicole, for being here again and keeping me engaged and keeping our listeners engaged and more to follow. As we have more and more updates, we will keep giving you updates for COVID-19. But I think we'll be expanding to more topics of interest to you as listeners. So please send us your requests, like what do you want to hear about? So we could present both science and real world data to you as listeners yes thank you so much for having me it's always a pleasure being here and i am happy to join anytime you need me (laughs) yeah thank you so much nicole and good luck on your master's in global health i'm so excited for you and i'm really excited about reinvigorating the program for abcs for global health i know it's been disappointing to our students that they couldn't go to the philippines this summer and last summer so i'd like to thank you for keeping them engaged and you are such an excellent mentor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you in our next episode.